that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola, along with my partner in crime, the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle, and a special guest host from the bullpen today. You know her and love her as the foundress of the Italian-American Museum in L.A., co-foundress. Let me make sure everybody gets full credit. I'm so glad you used the correct I know, you like foundress. I I hate that word. Yes, I know, foundress. I think it sounds like laundress. (laughs) (laughs) Backstress. There's a lot of of S's. (laughs) But she is uh, one who's uh, not only a a friend of ours, but a friend of the show and been on as a guest host a couple of times, Miss Mariana Gatto, straight from Los Angeles. Thanks for coming out. You're here so in New York a couple of days, huh? My second home. It has become, hasn't it? Wow. Yeah. I'm putting it out there to God. That's <laughs> no, <laughs> because I would always imagine that your uh, your dual citizenship is, is L.A. and Colorado. Well, it's my second home away from my second home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you It's know. strong. It's a compliment. I'm, I'm in no way disparaging it. It's just a very strong, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Endorsement. Endorsement, yeah. Well, these days I think I'm here more than I'm there. I mean, I was... I'd rather be here than there anyway, no offense. Uh, We're a fun crowd here. I'd, li- I'd like to hang out. I would love to hang out with me. <laughs> if I could clone <laughs> me this, this and just hang out with me. Who hasn't spent any time in the place <laughs> in question, but he'd rather be here. I did a lot of dry pies in L.A. <laughs> but John, LA got in at 11, <laughs> left at 2, got in at 4, left at 6.30. Yeah, one of these days you're going to come back to my L.A. But L.A. is like you're always in a car. It's yeah, nothing, nothing. No, no, that's not true. I spent time in L.A. I, I, on my own, and it was a lot of time in a car. Depends on where you live. And I just, it's yeah. like, a, I thought Jersey was bad. It was like. Road trip that never ends. But LA is a place, at least in my experience, that when you come from the East Coast, it takes one or two trips, and it takes one of those trips where you're there for a little while, and you don't have, you have one day where you're not pressured, and you wake up, and the weather's beautiful, and you breathe kind of easy in the morning, and you're like, oh, this is why everybody comes out here because mm-hmm. it, it is sort of uh, weather-wise and the natural beauty. It's it's got that paradise element to it. It really does this. Much as it's got its stressful, yeah. yeah. L.A. will forever in my mind be the 1984 Summer Olympics. I went to the 1984 Summer Olympics. <laughs> did you really? I did. Did you have Ray Parker Jr. in the background singing I Love L.A.? <laughs> I, I see that as your anthem. <laughs> no. Wasn't that... Uh, That's kind of an annoying Randy song, Newman? to be honest. Randy, Randy Newman. Yeah, no, Randy. it was Ray... Well, who was I don't Ray? know. Randy Newman, I think, wrote that. Almost positive. I love L.A. Don't, All right, don't challenge me on I this. Have lots of, we'll I have fix lots that. of love for lots of places. There's no place like L.A. There's no place like New York. It's one of those, you know. Yes. What do they say? That R- Rome only has Paris and Paris only has Rome, right? Yeah. There's certain cities are just unique. And I'm not saying about the city. I'm saying for us. What makes New York special is us. If you take us away, it's not special. <laughs> well, I wouldn't be here as much. So we're just, more you got to stick around. We're <laughs> fun. So you, bring in a, you were talking about some of the exhibits from the museum might be coming out here and they've been traveling. You've got Louis Prima in now, right? Yes, Louis Prima now, and if all goes as planned, we'll be bringing uh, Woven Lives here. Maybe we can talk about that when that uh, yeah, we should reaches that. fruition. That's really You exciting. have a great radio voice. I'm just noticing this I do. now. <laughs> she really brought us up a few. I'm the I mean, Italian Valley girl. <laughs> you have us, and then you have her. She sounds like NPR. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you, when I'm on, you know we're faking. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, you, have, you have. If we had like a news break after. <laughs> this yes. is news break. She should read this the commercial. Brought to you by your sponsor. 
I bet you. I bet you people would actually buy this stuff for sale if you read the Do commercials. Really Get your what's your mixer? I don't even know. I've never heard an episode. <laughs> I, we could be selling jujubes after. I have no idea. Raisinets? Do we have a raisinets commercial? No, we don't. No. Is there an Italian version of raisinets? No, I don't know. It's would great. it be dried figs covered in chocolate? That's I've had Speaking those of actually. Speaking dried fi- oh, those are so good. Those but I good. like anything fig. Uh, yeah, <laughs> let me say before we get to today's topic and our guest. I'm sorry, we have a wonderful guest, guest here. Great like, guest, what, what am I doing here? But I have I to say, though, I would run if I were you. It's Saint. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's Saint Lucy's Day today. Yes. It's December, oh, uh, and I just have to acknowledge yet again and thank the greatest Cucidati <laughs> cookies you'll ever taste. Yes. yes if you true. are lucky enough to be on the list, you made how many this year? Oh, I think 740. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I saw your pictures of your table. You're going to get yourself in trouble with those pictures. Everybody's going to want Everybody's going to I know. You're like, oh, I have a huge table, but none for you. 8,000. They go for miles. She has pictures. If your friends are on Facebook, and it's like miles and miles of table. It's like AI made the picture, but it's not because we know she does this. I made 8 million cuchitati, but none for you. You know what? Yeah, not what? everybody was. would have had five on the tables, and I only had five, but I gave you the five I had. Not everybody was a good boy or girl. Do you send coal to people? That would be the greatest no. thing. There's it's so many people. There's so many readers in the Italian-American community. I would love to say like, I'd have your cuchitati box with coal inside. <laughs> That's so true. Should we do that, that John? Well, she's well, also, she also makes a mar. Those are only for the very special people. That you should send. That's a no, I got this. Okay. You should, should I cut ama- that out? We don't get it. No, there's <laughs> usually only. No, like- leave the amado in there, and we're going to send that to bitter people. <laughs> <laughs> That's there's your bitter. There's plenty of them in our community. Let's just <laughs> to the bitter and angry Italian American. For the bitter. <laughs> like for those of you who don't know, amado because I'm not sure. Three Norwegians. We're up to three Norwegians. We started with. <laughs> oh, one. really? Yeah, that's we awesome. got three Norwegians now. Thank you, all three of you. All three of you. <laughs> amado is a digestive. Yeah. And it's a, it's a bitter because Italians are convinced. I don't know how factual it is. I'm sure it is that bitterness aids in digestion. We talked about it with John Luca last right, week. Right, with John yeah. Luca. But I mean, there's somebody who, I, if you haven't yeah. heard it yet, yeah. but the play on the words is bitter and Italian and the drink have the same word. Yeah. Amato so Amato, so for the Amato people, we're going to send an Amato Amato liquor. drink. And they certainly deserve it. There's plenty of people out there. That's a good, it's a good equivalent to coal. Even though they do, the Italians have that coal. Uh, sugar treat that they give when Bafana comes in. Oh, yeah. Gravoon. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's That's like, not yeah. beyond with Gravoon. Yeah, yeah, it's a good little thing to have. I, I, I'm going to buy it for the baby this year. She's. You can't give her coal. Yeah, why not? Let her get She this. looks just like your mother. <laughs> That's like giving your mother coal. Yeah. She, she your mother will though. kill you. You can't tell your no. mother you're giving her coal. No, I can't. <laughs> How could you give that little girl coal? Because it's cute. It's a cute little thing. No. Oh, you're going to give a bad Can't reverse vibes. bad vibes. I don't oh, want to do that. We all give a coal. No, I do not If we give a coal, we'll say that Brendan Young sent for Brandon. Don't pick on Brandon. We've been working hard, and uh, I guess probably after this comes out, maybe a few days, our Christmas video will come out. Brendan, start turning a Santa Claus. There's a lot of I'm fun. I'm a Santa Claus. I'm a Sicilian Santa Claus. I was singing it on the way over. Me too. It's in my head. Yeah, I don't know if the audience will have heard. It won't hear, have heard it by the time this comes out, but it's a Italianized version of Melikalikimaka, so it's not a Hawaiian Christmas, but an Italian one, and we're very proud of it. Can hopefully. I just jump in on this? So you all think I'm mentally ill and crazy, and I am. <laughs> And John plays a normal one, but when stuff like this comes out, John lets his true color shine. Yes. Because John's in bed at night coming up with Malakaliki. What's it called again? Mala Real Sons Malakaliki Maka, yeah. So we, did a, we did the Italian Malakaliki Laki. La, <laughs> it's, it's called. Doesn't that sound we, more we Greek? We all say, it sounds, yeah, I don't know what it is. What village are you from in Greece? Malakaliki Laki. <laughs> My family's from Malakaliki Laki. We grow great olives there. <laughs> we grow great olives <laughs> in Malakaliki Laki. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's not a village. It's 
it's an island. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's true. Not. They would correct me. Yes, it's the <laughs> island. <laughs> it's the island, yeah. The Turks used to come every other year to steal our olives. The Turks. Yeah, so then Mussolini came and killed all the olive trees. We hate the Italian. That's so true. Yeah. We love them more than they love us. Greeks? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think... That's you tell them how much we like them, or how we consider they're the only people who really like us. Like, ah, oh, the war, okay? Yeah, well, we, the war. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we did go and invade their country. We did go and invade. Doesn't <laughs> help. That. With a two thousand year span, we did it like two thousand years ago, and then we did it a third. <laughs> That's Italian time. Yeah. We waited two thousand. We'll get back to it. Go back. We'll get around. We'll get around to one of these days. Very ossified. You know, I talk about Italian history, two thousand years, and all these accomplishments. And today's guest is an incredibly accomplished documentarian let's say filmmaker academic writer all these things but we were having a conversation off mic about how he sees himself it'll be interesting to have that conversation on mic for all of you out there uh, eduardo montez uh, you go by eduardo montez bradley yeah it's talked like that it's montez bradley montez now bradley. but i grew up as eduardo montez in buenos aires but um my family name is montez bradley and and that became I think that I, went, I was going through customs once, and I was set aside and and questioned for hours and hours and hours until I found that there was a an Eduardo Montes that was kind of like a mass murderer. <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry, I'm Eduardo Montes Bradley. Oh, that makes a difference. So, and ever since, I was not stopping customs again, so stuck. I would I would stick with it too. Yeah. So, tell us about your family background then. Uh, Where's the Montes family from? Where's the Bradley family from? The Montes were Galician, and the Bradley were North Americans that went to Argentina in 1837. Wow. And then my grandfather was uh, Enrico Ferrarese from Verona. Ah, I did not realize that. And in my mother's side, they're all uh, surviving Jews from World War II. That came to Argentina That after. came to Argentina. God so it's a, very, it's a very... Uh, Eclectic, um, very Argentinian combo. I would yes. say it's very New York combo too. Yeah, yes, it's true. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's uh, there is a lot in common between Buenos Aires and New York in terms of this cosmopolitan um, fabric. You know, we're made of, of different currents of immigration, right? Someone on my trip to Argentina, because I, my wife and I went to Buenos Aires after many years of my kind of plotting and planning to get down there to learn about the Italian community there because I was told, uh, you know, it's, it's a fact, right? About 60-some-odd percent of Argentinians have some Italian uh, ancestry, and apparently there was at one point a vote in the uh, Argentinian uh, legislative branch to pick a national language, and Italian lost by one vote, I guess, because the population was so significant at that point. And so I was always fascinated by it. And we have some family down there on my dad's side. So we went down, and somebody, I was asking somebody about the Italian community there, and, and the gentleman said to me, Argentinians, we are, let me see if I get this right, we are Italians speaking bad Spanish, acting like we're British. And I thought that was an interesting yeah. combination of... Yeah, it's, I think it's a little bit longer. It's something like, uh, yeah, I heard that before. It's, it's, we think we're we think we're British, we speak like Italians, Pretend to eat like the eat like the French and so on, and, so. and uh, but it's it's very confusing. There's a, this anecdote of uh, of Diego Maradona going to Italy for the first time. You know, he came out of the slums. He's never traveled to Europe, and so he goes to and when he gets to Malpensa to the airport, he goes to a booth and he asks for uh, the directory to call one of his relatives, and he starts going and he 
turns around and tells his friend, hey, they're all Argentine here. <laughs> because names. of the, the names. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Because the last names were... And that, Italian, that, is a, yeah. that is a fact. You do forget, as a Southern Italian, American, Neapolitan, you, like you think of Maradona, you really do think of him as an Italian. You forget he's Argentinian. You forget the, you know, the, the, the game he plays for Argentina in the World Cup there and all the drama, but yeah, he, he's so easily relatable to... Uh, so he's so associated with Naples now, but what a it great is, it is completely, yeah. yeah. But you left Argentina at what point? How did you? Nineteen seventy. I left Argentina in nineteen seventy-eight, and and it was mostly um, um, politically derived. I mean, there was a military coup in nineteen seventy-six. So things got really difficult, and um, I was making films at the time, documentary films. And um, one thing led to the next, and I saw myself living in New York as of uh, August 1979. Wow, what a, what, a, what a transition I'm sure that was, especially, particularly under the junta and all of, you know. Exactly. Yeah, I have a, one of the presidents of Argentina was a viola for about a month, I think, or two months. Yeah. I think his name was Eduardo Viola or something, with Ernesto or something. But yeah. He's distantly related to my grand, but he was like the one of the military Dictator, he just kind of backed off quickly. He said, "Forget about," it, which I makes me think he is related to me because once they pushed <laughs> back, he was like, "No, no, 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 I'm good. I'll retire." You know, he lasts like six months. Uh, when the um, military coup w- w- was expected, we all knew what was happening. There were two possible um, dictators, and one was called the Dove, and the other one was called the Falcon. The one was this supposedly the this light-handed, and the other one was the tough one. Videla, which is the one that turned out to be chosen one was the dove viola was the falcon really hmm. yeah that's so interesting yeah, yeah wow i didn't know any of that I, that's great to know yeah i gotta go down and dig there we got we gotta go back there's a little there. falcon yeah, don't tell them that you're related <laughs> no, i won't i won't say i may not be we gotta do the spit test we'll see best way to know now but so you you came to new york and you and i were talking a little bit off the mic about the idea that you are a documentarian self-identified documentarian these days but you've got a background in narrative film and writing and tell us a little bit about kind of why documentary and why you see a difference? Um, I, I, I spent seven years in, in, in Los Angeles, or eight years in Los Angeles, and as a very young man, I, I got to direct, produce, and write uh, large films for Columbia Pictures with, uh, with a with intense cast, you know, Margot Hemingway, Frederick Forrest, uh, Miriam Diabo. I was 27, 28 years old at the time. And, um, and I wasn't really pleased with it. I was not pleased with the idea of recreating a fiction when I thought that reality, in fact, was offering infinitely better arguments. And uh, so I moved to Colorado. I didn't know that you... <laughs> Where in Colorado? In Denver and Boulder. Okay. And, um, and I started the long path towards uh, satisfying my curiosity. So I said, how can I... Because I love learning. I think that the purpose of existence is to learn um, for me. And how could I leave a registry of what I'm learning so others can enjoy it, use it, and continue to learn and move forward as a community, as a society? Well, documenting what I do. And the first thing I did, I was started to document it in books. And it, it was relatively successful. I got a... I got a, um, a pre-book deal with Random House Mondadori. Um, 
I was published in Italy, I was published in Spain, I was published in Argentina here, and um, and then I realized that the books were not enough because I could not express sounds, feelings. Um, I could, I, I wasn't that good of a writer, mm. and only a few that I can recognize that can trigger that in me. So I I went back to my passion for films and and that's when I discovered that by making documentaries I could put my ideas not on paper but on film and condition the audience to feel things through the effects through the music through the images and have a more intense immersive immersive experience that's the word it's immersive that's what it is so that's how I that's how I see myself today as a documentarian, where sounds, images. I can't wait for smells to get into. This. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is true how much smells trigger so many things in you. I mean, th they say it's the sense that actually is best at mm -hmm. creating associative memory. Right? Is smell. You know, we were talking before about the idea of podcasts and content and documentary as sort of the the best modern version of a book, really, you're writing a book, right? Like, it, we have guests on, and we, uh, especially longer interviews, you, you take certain sections as you're, you're quoting, right? And you're bringing it in, and you're, you're wrapping it around. And I mean, Pat always said, you, with the background as a professor in a university, this is the biggest classroom you have today, being on a podcast. So th these kind of parallels now, I think, are very important to how we look at learning, as you mentioned, going forward in the future because it is so much easier nowadays to find opportunities to learn outside of the traditional bounds, you know? I think so. I think also that um, the way that we were educated for the last 200 years, it was extremely influenced by the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, we're prepared to be a part of the production line. So that's why it's linear. So you go elementary, middle, or high school, university, then you go to work. What I see that has happened lately is that the learning experience never ends. It continues to evolve, just like technology continues to transform the production line. So um, once you engage, and I, I have two, two kids, and, and they have serious issues trying to cope with the orthodox and canonic idea of college. Because it is multiple things that they want to learn. Mm. And they know what they want to learn. And they want to build their own curriculum. Uh, so I don't know what this is going to end. But I think it's very interesting. It's, it's like a revolution that we're, that, that we're living. I don't know if we're all aware of that revolution. We have access to anything you want to know now. You can find out. I mean, it sounds very simplistic. But think about this. Picture the mo most remote town in Argentina. If I want to know the population... In seconds, I'm going to find that on Google. If I had that question in 1991, you'd be going to the be, no, no library by me would have had <laughs> no. a remote town in Argentina. Maybe, maybe the New York Public Library, the main one, would might have had a book on there. The information would have been dated. I might have had a book that was 40 years old. You know, there's a huge chasm in the pre the, those of us who came of age before the internet and those after. And the one that I think is the greatest chasm is that they don't understand that there was a time when every question could not be immediately answered in seconds yeah. 
on Google. And I think the fact that, you know, now, you know, if you want to learn anything, you want to find out anything, it's it's there. But I think that that's also, I always come back to the idea of the difference between knowledge and information. Because you can get information quickly, but you can't get knowledge quickly. And that's the idea of, to me, the documentary today, especially, you know, and the idea of these podcasts. I mean, obviously, you, you trust in us, right? We're, we're not, we don't have a work cited here. But I think the idea that even when you, like, I think of why we do some of the things we do, some of the topics, and the topic we're going to discuss today, because Eduardo's working on a project that has a lot of meaning to us and our audience, and we'll get to that in a second, but I think the idea that sometimes when I encounter difficulty in answering my questions now, even with these resources, then I'm inspired to go, it's like, okay, how do I add a simple answer? Is it a film? Is it an essay? Is it an article? Is it a book? Whatever it is, because we're, we are used to getting information quickly, but we have to remember that we still have to sometimes dig and create to provide knowledge and, like you say, leave that record of the stuff you're interested in and you've learned to the to future. And to, and to add to what uh, the two of you just said, uh, th there was a time, like you said, uh, that we had to wait for the next edition of the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica in order to see whether they were right or wrong. And they usually were wrong. Uh, now with GPT, I had an experience a few months ago that was fantastic. GPT gave me an answer that didn't make sense. And I go like, are you sure? And GPT says, no, I'm not. And I said, I think you're wrong. And GPT said to me, I might be. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you feel about it? And GPT said to me, I don't have a consciousness. Wow. I just have information. But your information is wrong. So I was suddenly having a conversation with an entity without a consciousness, which is like having a conversation with... <laughs> Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. So it's very interesting. I think that's very deep. I mean, it's deep. it blows your mind when you think about it. I, I had that conversation with the chat GPT. I use the Dolly for the graphics and the graphic stuff, and I'm learning it. And, you know, learning how to, how to craft prompts because it's not actually answering your request, right? It's then it's creating its own prompt to its system in a slightly different version. So you, you learn how, to, how it prompts itself. And uh, I have done a bunch of Italian-American things, and so some of them came out good, and I've learned the kind of buzzwords. And I reused the same buzzwords that I'd use. It's something about Italian-American family together eating. And it came back that it said it, it violated its content policy. Oh, yes. And I said, why? And it said, because the idea of Italian-Americans eating together is a stereotype, and we have the right <laughs> stereotype. This is really interesting. So I said, basically, I got almost offended. I said, well, uh, you know, as an Italian-American who's in this field and this is the stuff I do. I, I think it's a positive stereotype that we are having meals together and that. And it basically said to me, I don't really care what you think, you know, like it doesn't it means nothing to me. I'm not process I don't but care. But it could have it could have apologized to you. If you keep insisting, it's very interesting because there is a point in which it seems to be thinking and processing what you're telling it. It's 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 arousing. I mean it's uh I, I don't have feelings for GPT yet, but I think I might develop some in the future. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can How see that. How do you that. feel about that? <laughs> I'm just... Have you met your GPT yet? No. <laughs> um, I write with fountain pen. <laughs> so true. I'm not... He's not, not lying. That's, that's, that's not me. Yeah. But I can tell you, all the kids in college are writing their papers on chat GPT. GP, what was it called? Chat? chat GPT. I think the big... The elephant in the academic room nobody wants to talk about it's how do we learn to live with it? Yeah. 
Yeah. Because everyone's well, <clears throat> everyone say, well, we're going to get this program and that program, and it's going to catch you, and we're going to get you. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't. No. I don't. I mean, I don't know. Listen, this is there's nothing more out of my toolbox and technology stuff, but I think that it's going to get good. And I I think that what's happening is the kids are going to start to do paper. The kid, well, they are. We're not saying that the kids do their papers now on the chat with ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. They tweak them. Yeah. And they're done. And I just feel it's like, um, I, I, you know what? I, I say I'm, I am a fountain pen person, but I'm not as behind the curve as I think I say sometimes. Because, you know, I said a long time ago um, with the work I did with Delaware and stuff, and, and that's another story for another day, but education is going to move on to the cell phone. Because, I mean, it sounds very rudimentary to say that, but that's where kids are. Yeah. No. Right? That's the new textbook. That's, that's, that's the, the, the that, I don't want to say prism. That's, a, that's the tool they use to, to find things and learn things. Mm. And I think ChatGBT is just going to be another part of that. Mm. You know, like, when you talk to college students today, it impresses you how much they see things through the prism of Google. Yeah. Because they're very frustrated they want an answer. They want, okay, um, what's the meaning of life? They want an answer. They want a Google answer. Mm. So when you tell them that there's not a – Google can't really satisfy that answer, it frustrates them because they've been conditioned in a world where any question I ask, Google's going to answer within five lines. Again, information right. versus knowledge. Right, and I think that they have a hard time pers- uh, deciphering that. Yeah. Um, this I is think critical thinking. Critical yeah, thinking, exactly. sure, sure. I, I, that's, that's creative thinking. Creative yeah. thinking, and I think ChatGPT is going to be another. I guess I don't know. I, I don't. I, I, it's so hard to say. I don't want to say step away from the critical thinking, because, well, you know, Google Google helps you in a sense because you can find out anything. You really can. Like if I I want to find out, you know, population of that minusculely small town in the middle of nowhere in Argentina, I can find it out. Forty years ago, I couldn't. Forty years ago, I might consume years of my life trying to find out inform- certain kinds of information. So I think that ChatGPT, and I'm not the guy to figure it out. We're going to have to learn to live with it because it's not going to go anywhere. I think that the first step, if I may, is um, when when you when you feel that the um, papers that your students are turning in are written by GPT, just tell them to step up and come into your office and say, "Can you explain this to me?" No, but this is where I, this is what I'm saying is that faculty they can't catch them. They can't. That's the elf in the room nobody wants okay. to talk about. So what nobody wants to talk about is that they're saying, oh, this is, uh, they, what's happening is now is that they can't catch them. Nobody wants to address this. That's scary. And sure. because it the technology, my argument is because the technology is that good. Well, I mean, it's a bigger conversation, too, because like Eduardo points out, it gets stuff wrong. I've had it get stuff fundamentally wrong. It's not a repository of all information, right? It, it's it's what's been put into it. So, and it acknowledges that it gets stuff wrong. And it's like you know, there, there's the great question now that you Google: uh, Is there a country in Africa that starts with the letter K? And it says no because so much Chat GTP, uh, these mistakes have been integrated now into Google, and so Kenya gets sort of forgotten, right? Like it, you know, it's actually incorrectly impacting than the other resources like uh, search engines and stuff. You know, it can get stuff wrong i've used it for things where it's gotten facts fundamentally wrong you have to have some subject matter knowledge to kind of utilize it as a tool well that's the thing it's a skeleton builder it's a skeleton builder. so so it's the great outline are using it, it's yeah. the outline i mean yeah. you got to go in and tweak it which so is that, I, i'm not saying that. it's foolproof at all but 
if you tweak it in the right way, it does ninety percent of your work. That's true. Um, I that's, hate to, that's I, the. I hate to bring this up, but it's but because it's actually the, the subject that I'm working with, which is the pichidili. With regards to the pichidili, to the to the uh, uh, stone carvers that you know did the Lincoln Memorial and the Lions and the Public Library and whatnot, GPT and Google didn't have much information, and they kept repeating it. But the more I wrote about it, the more than GPT started to learn about it. And, and I will ask, for example, which one of the brothers, of the Pichilili brothers, carved the uh, pediment on the New York Stock Exchange? And it will say, Attilio Pichilili. And I will like, no, you're wrong. It's, it's Getulio Pichilili. Oh, I'm sorry about that. And two weeks later, I will ask, and it will give me the correct answer. So it is improving in itself with information mm. that you built in. And I think that because of the, of the work that I've been doing for about a year now with the PGDD, it's extraordinary what GPT has learned. So is GPT helping me? Yeah, but I'm helping GPT too. And GPT will help you with information that I provided. So who is this big mother goose yeah. of, of ours? It's going to be is a it huge the brain of the, of the science fiction... Orwellian universe? <laughs> Dave, listen, I, I, like I said, I, I, the beautiful thing about my life is I have a fountain pen cape. <laughs> I, I can go into a world of rotary phones and phone books right. and make believe that it's 1989 and I don't have to deal with this. Mm. But then I do go on the internet and I read news and there's really smart people saying that AI is gaining sentience. Mm. One day it's going to be able to launch nuclear missiles or eat us. <laughs> That's crazy. So, yeah. That's really beyond my comprehension, you know. Um, and, I, I think and that's why it's good. To, it's good to have a, a cave where you can yeah. run away from all these things. Because smart people, nerdy kind of science people, they should worry about this and leave me alone. <laughs> because this point, is way beyond. At me. some point, too, if AI is going to eat us or launch nuclear, like I remember, I had history class at Fordham that was uh, U.S. foreign policy, nineteen forty-five to present. So it was really the Cold War, and. Uh, our professor was a younger guy, but he was a kid during the 60s. And we were talking about all the duck and cover and then desk and this and that. And, and I, somebody in the classroom said to him, you know, professor, you were a kid at that point. Like, what, what did you feel going out of the desk? And he said, you know, at first I thought, like, okay, I'm doing that. I went home to my dad and I said, dad, you know, is the desk going to help me if there's a nuclear missile launched? And his dad said to him, son, I'm going to teach you a very important lesson. He says, when you hear that alarm, don't worry about getting under the desk. It says, bend over, stick your head between your legs, and kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> and at some point, it's like, you know what? If the computer's going to eat me or it's going to launch nuclear missiles, there's not much I can do. I don't have the capacity. Hopefully, I'll be and tasty. I, yeah. I've right. said for years, it's you, you, You're like Berkshire. My fat is quality fat. It's like Berkshire fat. It's like, what are the little French duckies, the goose that they get pate from? Yeah. This is sick. How do we wind up on this? I don't know, but we have... Like, if you're still listening to us, you need help, too. If you've stuck around this whole time... Yeah, don't get eaten. This season, gather together and connect to Italy with Media Set Italia. After holiday shopping or the big meal, turn on the TV and catch the latest and greatest from Italy's top channels. Canale 5, Italia 1, and Rete 4 on Media Set Italia, including a new season of the can't-miss talent show Amici. Brand new current events program, E Sempre Carta Bianca with Bianca Berlinger. New episodes of the quiz show Caduta Libera with everyone's favorite host, Jerry Scotti. Plus, brand new dramas and holiday specials. There's so much to be thankful for in Mediaset Italia, so call your local television provider today and ask for the channel.
But you, we have a good topic to talk about today. You mentioned that you're working on a film right now about the Piccadilly Brothers. I'm sure there's a considerable part of even our audience that doesn't know who they are. Please explain. The Piccadilly Brothers are, um, is, is a family of stone covers who basically changed the way that we look at cities today. I mean, without the Piccadilly Brothers, it's very difficult to understand the American Renaissance, which my first feeling when I heard of American Renaissance, I was like, what? America didn't have a Middle Age. Why did it have a Renaissance? What it is is the importation of concepts of beauty and art into the streets. Um, we are surrounded in New York and Washington, in Pittsburgh and Chicago, even in San Francisco and in San Diego, of a certain type of urban developments and beauty that is intrinsically influenced by Italian art. Mm. One thought that crossed my mind recently, and I think it's a beautiful idea, not because I thought of it, but because it provoked some emotions, is that when our ancestors had to come to this country, they were told by the ship captain and everyone else, this is whatever you can carry with you. So we came with two suitcases or whatever we could carry with us. We could not bring our monuments. And we can't live without our monuments yeah. because they're our culture. They're an expression of who we are. So the first thing we did after the Industrial Revolution, after the Civil War, when we decided to become a nation proud of ourselves, was to start building monuments. Some were wrong. Some were right. Some were more right than others. But we needed these monuments in order to see ourselves as an intrinsic part of Western culture that we left behind. And we transform America. The Piccirilli brothers and the father of the Piccirilli brothers, Giuseppe Piccirilli, are responsible for that transformation because what they did is they were able to produce at an industrial level out of the Bronx most of the statues that you see today in the city. But for, let's stick to New York, which is, is, is just a matter of time. Uh, although the Lincoln Memorial, and the, uh, it's, it was made by them, although the pediment at the US Capitol was made by them, although the pediment at the Supreme Court was made by them. So, but let's leave Washington behind. Um, if you take a walk through New York, everything came out of that studio because they had the ability and they had the knowledge that American sculptors didn't have. Take, for instance, one of the, uh, my, 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 my previous film was a film about Daniel Chester French. Oh, yeah, designer of the Lincoln Memorial. Of the right? Lincoln yeah. Memorial. But Daniel Amongst Chester other Fr things. Yeah. yeah, but all of Daniel Chester French monuments, except two busts, were carved by the Piccinelli brothers. Wow. All by two. Because they didn't, if, if you think of it, Daniel Chester French was an extraordinary businessman, was an extraordinary designer, was a foremost American sculptor, but he was a, a dropout of MIT. I mean, he didn't have the technique and the education that the Pichinier brothers, as graduates of the Fine Arts School of Fine Arts, San Lucas School of Fine Arts in, in Rome had. Hmm. These guys knew about art, not only about art. So to th we often think about this funny Italian man that ate spaghetti and singed opera and had funny paper heads and were carving like gnomes inside a studio. No, no, they, they, were, they were masters of their craft. Yeah. They were 
the Michelangelo's that we didn't have. And they came here to set in motion this extraordinary American idea of the, the white city in the hill, yeah. of the American Renaissance, of the Gilded Age. Yes. Without them, there is no Gilded Age because before they came and they established themselves at the Bronx, the only way to get these lunettes and these medallions and these cornucopias and whatever it is that they did and they did everything was to take the plaster models to Florence and Rome, have them executed there and bring it back. Wow. That's, a, that's a, an incredible undertaking logistically to have to do. That. It's extraordinary. I think that they deserve more than a mere entry in Wikipedia or a recognition in the Encyclopedia Britannica. They deserve more than GPT knowing about them. We as Americans should understand that without the PTDD brothers in 142nd Street in the Bronx, we would not be who we are as an urban vanguard center in the, in the 1880s, 1890s, uh, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt knew this when, when he called them to decorate the uh, East Wing of the White House, which I just found out two weeks ago. Wow. And you could also argue uh, understanding why some of their sculpture, some of their work is not signed tells us a lot about you know, American history and the role of Italian-Americans in it. I felt the same way, but honestly, I, I'm not denying racism, which, which, which was a major part of it. It was a very, very difficult. Otherwise, Attila Piccinini would not have been pushed to make a mea culpa in 1940 and, and come out expressing his feelings as an American in a radio program. Uh, by the State Department. Um, but, um, but I don't think it is the case, because if you look at old bronze monuments, they have a mark of where the foundry, mm. where it was cast. But most stone and marble monuments are not signed by the carvers. Mm. Yeah. Initially, I thought it was racist. I thought it was because they were Italian. But the truth is, that is not the case. Although, in favor of your argument, I would say that when Daniel Chester French approached the Art Commission for the Lincoln Memorial to get the name of the Piccinillis onto the city at Lincoln, the Art Commission said no, because the Piccinilli name should not be associated with that of Abraham Lincoln. Wow, that's wild. <laughs> And a great testament to Daniel Chester French for even approaching. The he was yeah, and also let's for the record, uh, the Pichidis made more money really? than than Daniel Chester French, hmm. oh. and it was because Daniel Chester French wanted to pay them for their efforts, and they were handsomely compensated. I would love to get into more of the detail about their lives, but obviously that's the beauty of the film you're working on. What's the expected date? What? what where are you on this process? Um, we still. You know, first of all, one of the things that we discovered was that they were academically trained in Italy and that they had contributed greatly to the main altar at the St. Paul's Cathedral in London for the um, uh, Queen's Jubilee in 1888. So when they came here, they had credentials. So I just came back from London last week and I was allowed to discuss with the, uh, with the bishop and show them what is it that the Pichinis have done there. So we keep finding stuff, 
And so we keep fundraising uh, constantly. I mean, we could not. I mean, we're here at the Columbus Citizens Foundation, and I could not have gotten it this far without at least Ackerman's support and the support of the board of the Citizens Foundation, because this takes time and money. Now, at some point, you have to call it quits. You have to right. say, that's it. Right. So if that is your question, I would say the answer is by Columbus Day 2024. I want to have this film out in every Italian American association yeah. <laughs> as a, and as a tool of as a learning and teaching tool by October two thousand twenty-four. That's so exciting. I mean, not to blow sunshine, but you know, you've got an incredible CV of accomplishments and some really genre-influencing documentaries, and uh, so to have somebody like you dedicate yourself to uh, a really completely underrepresented family in our community's experience means a great deal. So I very much look forward to seeing this product. Uh, the, I guess the final question I could ask you is, first of all, is there a way for people to get involved, a website, any way that people can sort of just give their support and goodwill? Yeah, when you say final question, that means we're not going to talk again after today? <laughs> no, final question for the audience, right? We can oh, okay, certainly yeah. come back. We're going to have to talk when it comes out, for Thank sure. You, yes. We're going to have to digest um, it together. Yes, we can, if you're interested in learning more about this, you should, um, and supporting the film, uh, you should go to um, heritagefilmproject.com, and there means there to support the film. And please register for the blog, because every time we make a discovery, and that I travel and I find something, um, like their birthplace in Massa Carrara, and our travels through Rome, I published that on my blog, so and the articles are interesting, I think, and um, so you're welcome to register and support the film as well. What was your biggest surprise about them, from what your concept was when you began the documentary to where you are now? That they're complex, just like we are, that they're not six, that they, each one of those, uh, of that conglomerate, of that clan, is a universe in itself, and that there is not such a thing as I think that that remember that song. I'm an Italiano. Uh, mm. I mean, the author recently passed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we, ta we talked about it on the show together. Uh, Toto Yeah, I think it's wonderful, but on the other hand, it just reduces everything to to one common denominator, and and there is a difference between Attilio and Masaniello, Masaniello and Getulio. Getulio and, and Orazio, Orazio and Iole, Iole and the parents, Giuseppe and Barbara, and they all think differently, and they all come from different political backgrounds, and they all have personal different experiences, and understanding the artist is of the utmost importance in order to understand the art. Hmm. You even think about it, really, in that, that sense, it's, you know, there's the humans behind the factory, right? There's the, there's the human stories behind the, the output. You look at the David, and you're like, that is the David. No. Who is David? It remains the question today. Yeah. Okay, so my question is, you see 14 million people that leave Italy between 1876 and 1920, right? Many of them are artists, people like the Picciarelli brothers. They're classically trained you know, they've been to the best academies in Rome and elsewhere. But a lot of them are not. Many, of, Most of them, numerically speaking, are peasants. 
who nonetheless go on to create these incredible works of art, public art, uh, folk art, all around the country. And uh, if you think about it, you know, they had very little, if any, expo exposure, excuse me, to uh, high art. You know, the majority of it might have been limited, or the majority of them might have been limited to, you know, what they saw at their church and their little paese, um, the spectacle, the feste, you know. Uh, but they come here, and people like Sabato Rodia, the architect of the Watts Towers, or Baldassare Forestiere in Fresno, California, who built the underground gardens, come to mind. And they seemingly do create these works of art for the sake of creating art. Uh, it's art for art's sake. So what is it about Italian-Americans, and I'm not, uh, or Italian, Italians, and th those who became Italian-Americans, what is it about us that we had this urge to leave a mark or to create something just for the sake of creating Cult it? Culture. Culture. Rome. Rome? You, <laughs> said, you said something that is very interesting. When you talk about a peasant from a village in Calabria, where did he uh, learn this appreciation for ancient culture, uh, a church. Mm -hmm. a church. Um, uh, they were impregnated with a sensibility towards a beauty that is not only in church. It is in church when it comes to classical, neoclassical, antiquity, blah, blah. But uh, once they walked out of church and see the ocean and the coastline and, and, and life, I mean, it's one of the most beautiful places. The sensibility of these people extraordinary mm. and they, they were not they were not warriors in the sense that I don't know the Vikings were um, they were not in the business of destroying mm -hmm. idols but building idols I think we come from a culture of idol builders mm. Mm. as opposed to a culture that's why I have a great I have an issue with the destruction of monuments for ideological purposes because it is not in my blood in my blood is if I protect your monuments, it's an unwritten agreement between you and I that you will protect mine. Mm, that's very interesting. That Roman mentality of you have your culture, I'm here, you know, you, you're, you're integrated in to what we are as long as you behave, right? As we we didn't go to Cairo to destroy the pyramids. Right. We might have brought a few items here and there, but... <laughs> yeah, we might have stolen some and relocated. Yeah, I mean, that, relocated that's the greatest... Relocation. No, but you know, that's, that's just, the, you know, moving... I, no, I want to say this. That's one of the most brilliant things we've ever said on. I, I don't say we. That's been said on here. Because Vikings went in and destroyed. Italians went in and looted. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's a very I'd rather different. be the looter <laughs> yes. than the destroyer. So yes. we, we, we love your pyramid. It's going to wind up in our piazza. Yes. Yeah. Well, or in the Vatican. Although they've been given some back, amazingly. They sent the, they sent the Aximobolus to Ethiopia a couple well, of years ago. Can I just say this? That was amazing. Italy takes good care of its monuments. I would rather have Italy holding on to a lot of these monuments than other countries. Well, look at the British. They just had that major robbery from the British Museum, right? How many... Artifacts were stolen. Something in the well. The fact that Nero, the fact that Nero burned Rome, it doesn't mean that you have to destroy Nero's monuments, right? Yeah. I'm following now on Instagram the Church of Santa uh, Trinita de Pellegrini in Rome, which is being restored. So it was a church at the time of um, Saint Philip Neri. What's like the 1540s, mm. back back ballpark around then. And I'm just looking at these Italians, the restoration work. It just blows my mind. It's unbelievable. I yeah. mean, I just like, um, just I don't, it just blows my mind. I mean, you just see 
detail because the other thing is a lot of the major monuments of that church are on the facade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's it's exposed to the elements and and I mean Italy's good at a lot of things, making lunch <laughs> and fixing monuments or yeah. at the top of that. And, yeah. I, and that's true. We are we are a culture of looters in the best sense. Yeah. You know, that's what I was saying the the other um I was getting to a little bit at the last podcast. I, I wouldn't did. call it looters. We're perseverationists. Uh, we yeah, per- we, uh, yeah appreciation. Yeah. We don't think you can handle Collectors. it, so we'll take it to Rome and keep it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Collectors. It's, it's, Collectors, yeah. yeah. We're not Vikings. No, we're, we're not, not Vikings. Vikings. They come and they destroy. No. no. No, although they did leave a nice imprint in They Sicily. destroy and they rape. We preserved and seduced. <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. wow. That, Whoa. That's the, that's I like the, that. Well, say that again. That may be the title of the episode. <laughs> what do you again? Say it again. I forgot already. That's like, try, that's a they t-shirt. They destroyed and they raped. We enjoyed some we wine while we're doing it. We preserved and seduced. Oh, bingo, my, my bingo. that's a, John, listen, I'm saying right now, I want you a commitment on air. I want Roman ruins with that on a t-shirt. You got it. That's the pad shirt. That's the new pad t-shirt. Yes. That's the greatest. You're getting a Quote on the bottom, Eduardo. Don't worry. That's, that's phenomenal. That is a that is who we There's are. More where that came yeah. from. Yeah, that reminds me of the well, you know, square the, coliseum. The, the, the we, we are the people of poets. We of, never we uh, never bothered any. I mean, like that's no. someone's uh, going to go berserk. Well, I mean, we went into countries, and as long as you didn't cause trouble, they were not countries. Basically, yeah. they, they were, were not, not countries. Country. Countries, true. true. What that, they became the countries after we left. After I we mean, left, we did them a favor, like Germany, for example. Right, oh, true. true. We defined what they were. Germany wasn't Germany until no, Rome pulled out. Then Germany says, "What are we?" Do you know? I Net- think we're Germans. <laughs> <laughs> did you what know? Did you, Netflix had a series on. It's the German perspective of like the Roman invasion. No, I like, didn't see that. We are happy barbarians. <laughs> they want to come. They, they're coming in here telling us to wash our hands. And I'm like, are the Germans watching this like drinking? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We never wash. I mean, were they like ch- like, like we civilized? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not backing down on that because someone's going to get annoyed. Write that email. Because no, ger- there might be one German, right. three Norwegians, and one German. We're not backing down. <laughs> I had to give a speech in South Carolina at an Italian event. It was Italian American Heritage Month 10 plus years ago. And even though it was an Italian event, I guess the way they do this stuff in, in Charleston or wherever I was, I don't know. Um, all the community groups, the ethnic groups, do their events together. So, like, the Italian event was hosted by Italians, but. Frankly, the majority of the audience was the Hibernians and the this and the you know Sons of St. Patrick and all this stuff. And I was the keynote speaker. And before I could speak, each group would get up and, and introduce themselves. And, you know, we are the loyal order of Hibernians, and we've been in this city since 1632, and we did this and that, and we built this and 15 mayors, and then the Irish came and the Scottish. And, the, but the, and there was like, you know, 30 Italian guys because it's Charleston, South Carolina. So I was – it dawned on me in the middle of it, so I started – Got on my phone, thankfully. I had Google, and I get the right year and year of the founding of Rome, and uh, did all my math, and I rewrote my little speech on my note card, and I, you know, I'm not one to write a speech, like you, like you Pat. I got up, and I said, I represent the Italian-American community and our Italian forebearers, and uh, we, since uh, whatever the year of the founding of Rome, 2,000, 3,000 years, whatever it is, uh, for this many years we've been civilizing the rest of you. <laughs> and it was it got a, a uproarious applause from the 35 Italian guys in the room and not so much from the Irish, Scottish, and German club and all the rest of them. Well, I mean, think about this. Bath, England. Yeah. Like Londinium. How much yeah. of, of Britain, like they had an empire that the sun never set on. But the Romans got there and they were savages. That's so that's so the, much of Europe. I mean, uh, you go to Europe. That was the best. I was in walking the walls of York. Yeah. The castle. And I was like, I guess, yeah, I guess it'd be the castle. I don't know, castle, city walls, however you want to find. 
And I was like, this the, the foundations of this are Roman walls. Oh yeah. Like how what was England? What would England today be had the Romans not been there for a good chunk of time? You never hear the British ever, ever, ever tout their Roman roots. And had they stayed longer, the food would be better. <laughs> Probably. Um, yeah, sure. Let's hope. <laughs> should we have a should we have an answer? Because you're Argent you're Argentinian, I'm Irish. Well, you get this. We should have an anti-British podcast. <laughs> yeah. We could have the Roman roots of a rotten empire. It's called it It's Not the Falklands. That'll be the name of the podcast. <laughs> well, this has been a lot of fun. Well, you and get it all on here. You folks. get it all you on here. You get the right, whole you, gamut. You come for the Pichadillis, you leave with a lot more. <laughs> But uh, hopefully we can have you back. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. I'm looking forward to having the conversation after we've all seen the film. God Spares, October 2024. What a way to celebrate Italian American Heritage Month. I think uh, a lot of people in our audience will be looking forward to and it. And there was a great, that's how we found it. There was a great article about you and what you're doing in the New York Times. Yeah. So if you want to get a, a foretaste yeah. of the Picciarelli brothers, the New York Times had an outstanding October, uh, it was published in October 15th. And it was two full pages. That it was, was fantastic. Was, yeah, it was beautiful. Guess. We're gonna link it from the show page because it's a great, it's a great intro. So do your homework, and then we'll come back, God willing, next year and yeah. talk about the documentary. I would love nothing more than an Italian American Heritage Month episode where we've just walked out of a screening and get to record. Do they our, have any descendants that could thought. do statues of me and John? Um. We always talk about paintings, but maybe we could do equestrian statues, John. Don't even get me started. That's how I want to be buried. Under I've only a, been on a horse once under, in my life, uh, but under I'll do a statue wife. of repose yeah. of myself. That'd be great. It would be an interesting version of the four riders of the apocalypse and having a lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. We'll be qu- inclusive. Don't, don't, don't tempt can me I and John because we'll. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> can I hold a torch? Of oh, yeah. <laughs> love this idea. Well, now we know what I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of the afternoon. So if you're out there and, you, uh, and you're looking for something interesting to get behind and support in a great Italian-American story, here's an opportunity with this wonderful new project about the Picciarelli Brothers. We hope you guys have enjoyed this conversation, no matter where it's taken us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born in Italy. See that you're born in Italy. See that you're born in Italy.